Welcome. It's great to have you back. Some of you asked why the last episode was numbered 18. Last week, I spoke with Helena, and towards the end of our conversation, I asked her to find out her son's favorite number. At the ripe young age of two and a half, young Master Stefano said, 18. In her email, Helena added that he spelled it correctly as well. A curious statement, I thought. Why did she mention that her son spelled a word correctly? Why is that relevant? Why is it something worth mentioning at all? And then I remembered how old Stephanos is. Two and a half. I went back and reread her email, and this time I could see she was so proud of him, and rightfully so. I took it as a lesson in slowing down, something I know I need to work on. But I was also quite happy that she shared this simple yet monumental victory with me. Thank you, Helena. In today's episode, I talk with someone who I in equal parts envy, but also admire. He's one of the most articulate people I have ever met. He reminds me of a differential equations professor I had, Dr. Carl Lutzer, who used to jump on top of desks in class to make a point to his students. I don't think that this individual does that, but like Dr. Lutzer, he has an uncanny ability No, a gift to make you want to listen to whatever he's saying. I've had many wonderful conversations with him. Without further ado, meet Tim. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm okay. I like the beard. Oh, thanks so much. I like the It's different. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I don't think anyone likes the mustache. I lost a bet to a student, so I had to essentially glue a dead rat to my face. Oh. But No, the rat looks very much living. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's much consolation to have a live rat glued to your face, but I'll take the compliment. Thank you. So how have you been doing? Um, I've been okay. How have you been? Not too bad. Uh, trying to stay... Active, I guess, for lack of a better term. I, I get bored, and then if I get bored, I start panicking. So uh, this pseudo-podcast, or at least my attempt at whatever this is, uh, has kept me interested in, in uh, reaching out to different people and, and coming up with things to ask them or asking other people to come up with things to ask people in the future has has sort of uh, Help me keep my sanity. I guess I'll say that. Yeah, so it seems like a great idea. Is this the podcast now, or is it? Something- yes, I don't know if you want me to start again, or if oh. you're comfortable. Yeah, no, we fine. are on the podcast. Oh, sure. Um, so I'll start with the question that I kept forgetting to ask uh, the previous person. If you were to give this a title, and I know you gave me something previously in an oh, email, joking, so you can. No, no, no. It, it, it was a wonderful title. So if you were to give it a title, and you're welcome to recycle it if you like, what would you give it? Oh, man. Yeah. I guess <laughs> I guess that verbal filler. 
would be the... <laughs> Say that again? I guess that verbal filler that I just had would probably be most appropriate. Oh man, yeah. And then an ellipsis. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be a tough sell, but... Um, I'm going to dive right in with the conversation questions that I was asked to ask you. And then I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself. Oh, sure. So, oh, maybe you should tell us who you are. I don't think I'm, I introduced you. I'm a terrible host at this. Oh, man. So maybe we will start with your introduction, and then I'll ask you the question. So go ahead. Tell me about yourself. I've had many conversations with you about pedagogy and uh, academic things, but I know little to nothing about you outside of you share your name with your dad, and it's massively confusing to find who I'm sending an email to. Yeah, it's but, it's uh, a very common name, Timothy Siniskowski. So, you know, you run into a lot of them at the same institution. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm Tim Siniskalki. I currently teach full-time chemistry on the Book Return campus of Palm Beach State College. And uh, I have a, a bachelor's degree. I actually am an alumnus of, of Palm Beach State College. I went here years ago. And then I went on, I thought I was pre-med, and I went on to UF to study chemistry. And by the time I graduated, if you had asked me like what I wanted to do, I would have had no idea. But the one thing I knew I didn't never want to do, wanted to do again was chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, okay, <laughs> and so uh, years went by and it was kind of a jack of all trades. I went to FAU to study French literature. I got a master's degree in that. And then I started tutoring in the SLC. And Did I, you say French literature? Yeah. Yeah. You know, have you studied very... <laughs> French in the past? Or, or was yeah. this one of those massive endeavors where you say, I'm going to learn a new language and also get a master's in literature of. of well, I of do have a master's control. in French literature. The only thing I can do confidently is embarrass myself. So. Okay. That's going to be all. But I love, I love, uh, I love. French authors, especially from the 17th century. There are a bunch of them. The French moralists in particular, they are really fun. This is starting to put the conversations that we've had on pedagogy <laughs> in perspective now. now it, I'm starting to kind of, sort of understand. Uh, but okay, uh, where are you from? Tell us whatever else you would like about yourself. Yeah. Uh, so then I was, yeah, I was tutoring in the SLC. I loved working in the SLC. I loved seeing students grow one-on-one -on -one over a semester. I loved um, for, being forced to think clearly through problems so that you could communicate them clearly to other people. And it was just really rewarding on a lot of levels. So I was thinking, I, I enjoyed it so much. That's what made me think of eventually trying to teach at PBSC. So I went back and got a master's degree in chemistry and here I am. Cool. Did you have any interest? I don't know if we offer any French literature classes, but could that have, were you interested at all in English literature? I know that that sounds like a dumb question, but I wonder how much overlap that there could have been with your training as a, a French literature expert uh, to the English language. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess the Little grammar that I know, I did learn from studying foreign languages, but uh, I like some English literature, uh, some American literature. I like Ralph Waldo Emerson, so it's fun. I, I'm only familiar with a very sad and depressing poem he wrote. Oh, no. 
I don't know. I, we, we had this conversation with the last person who I won't name because I haven't released their episode yet, but I was bad-mouthing Nathaniel Hawthorne a lot. Uh-huh. And probably only because I couldn't remember Emerson. And I don't think I've read <laughs> enough of his stuff. Because if you had remembered Emerson, you would have badmouthed him first. Yes. <laughs> I, I, but I think Hawthorne takes the cake for, for people that I hate in, in American literature. Uh, but, okay, so what happened that said, I, I enjoyed doing this, I hate doing this, and I never want to do it again, to now teaching it? Oh. And you, I, I could have never guessed that you hated chemistry at some point of time in your life because you, you always come off so enthusiastic and effusive about it that oh, I would yeah. have never even put you in the same sentence as someone that, you know, I thought wasn't just completely head over heels, dead positive and, and a very advocate uh, believer. I, I'm just missing words here. You seem to enjoy chemistry so much that I cannot envision a time where you didn't enjoy it. So how, how did that happen? Where, where did that all come from? Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy chemistry now, but I enjoy it as, because it's the world and the world is so beautiful and fascinating. And if you approach something in the right way with the right amount of imagination and in, intrigue, everything becomes intriguing and beautiful. And I think it's because I hated it so much and that I came to appreciate it that I realized what a, what a loss it is to dismiss a whole human endeavor like that. And also it's really rewarding to be able to reach people who I kind of recognize myself in, who maybe don't enjoy chemistry at first. But yeah, I I remember when I was studying chemistry and French literature, uh, a lot of people would ask me what the connection was. But to me, I, I never really saw a disconnect. It always seemed like we live in one world, a unified world that we kind of have to chop up because we only have so much time to explore it. But whatever we learn in one area sheds light on uh, our ability to appreciate and explore other areas too. There are some explicit overlaps, like there are some classics of French literature, classic writers like Blaise Pascal, who also contributed a lot to science and chemistry, and he has like a unit of pressure named after him, and he invented the first calculator. But I think it's more just a matter of appreciating the the world around you and seeing it more richly, which is education to me. It's seeing a richer world around you at every moment, rather than, in addition to, I guess, becoming skilled in a particular area and being able to, to do practical things with it. So was there a watershed moment that, you know, it flipped a switch where you went from, I hate chemistry, I hate chemistry, I hate chemistry, I love French literature, ooh, I like chemistry again. Or was it more of a gradual, the prodigal son returns? Uh, or, it, you know, in mathematics, at least, personally speaking, I have a lot of those uh, clicky moments where I hate a particular field or a branch, and then... Apropos of nothing, I, I wouldn't even be studying, say, graph theory. I would be studying analysis. And then all of a sudden, uh, that result that I hated in graph theory because I didn't understand it, I, I would, or at least I would think I would. And that moment of clarity was what I got addicted to. And that's what you know made me stay in mathematics. But was there something similar that happened to you or with you? Or was it just 
hey, I'm applying for this job, so I better start liking it. I hate to put it in, in, you know, in, in such reductionist terms. But. <laughs> no, it was, it was very gradual because uh, I was okay. awful at chemistry. And so as I started tutoring it, I became better at it. And then I think what you're good at, you enjoy. And then also the more you... The more familiar you are with something, the easier it is to see connections between it and your daily life. And then you see the relevance of it. And then when I was trying to engage students that I would be working with in the SLC, I would always be on the lookout for videos of experiments that were beautiful or something. Those interested me as much as it would have been helpful to me to how would you define a or describe a beautiful experiment? What what is beauty to you in chemistry or well in anything really? <laughs> um well, <laughs> so I guess, I don't know how how, every, how people feel in general. I feel like we're kind of thrown into the world without much of an explanation. And as we go through life, we kind of have to make sense of it. I don't know that anyone ever completely makes sense of it, but sometimes you'll, say, be walking on the side of a mountain or you'll come to a passage in a book that you're fascinated by or an idea that really sparks your interest. And it kind of doesn't matter that you don't have an explanation. You don't know how all the pieces fit together. But it's uh, the the awesomeness of it uh, is just kind of breathtaking and you're glad that you were there to experience that. So I think there are videos, for example, in chemistry, you can use a macro lens to take videos very up close and things that are drops, for example, a drop of liquid, you realize are as fast and as rich as clouds in outer space. Um, and so you can visually see things that are that you're able to calculate that are mind-boggling. Like every time you exhale, you breathe out more atoms and there are stars in our galaxy. So with, with some technology, I personally prefer like recordings rather than simulations, but simulations can be fun too. But with some technology like a macro lens, you can, you can start to see um, processes that on a macroscopic level might be easy to dismiss. So you realize there's more in front of your eyes all the time than you would have appreciated. So I, I did not know that fact or factoid about breathing out more atoms than there are stars in the universe. Oh, our Do you find that you're able to, I don't want to use the word convert, but are you able to convince students with that hook to pay attention or at least give chemistry a chance for a little bit longer? Or do you find that it's a cheap <laughs> trick that, you know, employed by a magician to say, hey, look here while you do stoichiometry and, you know, things that maybe are not, visually or, or intellectually appealing to most, but I find beauty in, in stoichiometry. I, I didn't, you know, chemical reactions and mixing stuff in test tubes, that never held my held my attention so much. But when we had to do uh, ice setups or, uh, you know, stoichiometric calculations in general, I was able to draw connections between uh, quadratic equations and, uh, you know, logarithmic functions and exponential functions and exponential growth and logarithmic growth to whatever was happening in chemistry. And that's what made it meaningful to me. So do you find that it's uh, something that allows you to keep students glued a little bit longer? Or do you find that it generally fosters a sense of interest the more you do it? 
So is it a cheap party trick that you can say, hey, I can keep their attention a little bit longer? Or do you think that as you do it, and I, I know that you do, uh, as you do it every day in every class, do you think that they become more enthusiastic for it or at least hate it less? Yeah, I think so long as it's relevant and consistent, uh, I think it only has a positive effect. I don't think it's a cheap trick if it's relevant and consistent. So how do you deal with that in the classroom? How do you, do you accommodate everyone, which I know is nearly impossible? Uh, how is it that you approach uh, the relevancy argument for students that come with a wide variety of backgrounds and have an even wider variety of futures that they hope to live? Yeah. So how do you make something <laughs> relevant to, you know, enough of the audience to where they stay with you? <laughs> yeah, I'll leave that question at that. Well, I think, I think we are, we're all humans exploring a similar world. So the, something that appeals to someone as a human being exploring the world around them, I think is more or less universal. So it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be career related necessarily. And I don't think it has to be based on their previous interests. On the contrary, I think if they were never interested in it before, that's all the more opportunity that it gives you to, to make them interested in, in a new topic. But at, at the same time as saying that, I'm always torn in class because, <laughs> um, because on the one hand, I, want, I feel like students deserve and I want to give them a polished and like complete and refined and revised experience where every moment is like carefully crafted. And on the other hand, I feel like I have so much to learn as a teacher and I have so many things that I want to, and as a scientist, I like want to experiment with classes and see what works and what doesn't. And whenever you do that, things always don't work. So, so, um, so that might've been a rambling answer, but yeah. No, it wasn't. So how do you balance that urge then? Because I, I can't remember where I read it, but, um, or maybe it was a video that I watched, but, uh, no, I remember it was a post on Quora something I, I shouldn't be reading, but I wake up every morning with an email from that stupid website and it's just a, such a time sink. Uh, are you familiar with it? Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's the devil's play thing. I think <laughs> that and Reddit are, are made to make you non-productive. Oh no. Anyhow. no Reddit has con consoled me in dark periods in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it, it's where the world goes to congregate. But the the article was um, getting some weird feedback. All right, uh, the article or the question was about how polished instructors conduct their courses or conduct a class session. So uh, I think it was Ken Muller uh, who responded, regardless of who responded. Uh, but it said that there were two types of professors that this very famous professor had had. One where uh, the professor would start on the top left corner of the of the blackboard, write all the way across, keep writing in complete sentences and equations, and you know with perfect diction and and perfect awareness of where that person was at any point of time. Turn around at predetermined and practice times, things that had you know this lecture had been reversed or rehearsed enough times to where this guy could recite it from memory. And at the end of the class, the person would stop exactly at the bottom right corner of the walk uh, of the chalkboard. <laughs> so not only was the delivery 
just perfect and and rehearsed and the pauses were practiced but even the presentation of the material down to the usage of space on the blackboard was just exquisite on the other hand are so i can't imagine that i i i cannot myself bring myself to be that regimented especially in front of a class I, I don't think I'm even capable of doing something close to that. Uh, the other response is the enigmatic teacher that jumps on top of desks to make a point. And <laughs> not to say that the first one is not enigmatic, but, you know, there's a completely different feel for the mad scientist mathematician or the mad scientist chemist. Um, so how do you balance those two Jekyll and Hyde-ish uh, characteristics where, you know, part of you wants to be prim and proper and then the other part wants to go explore how people think. Yeah, that's and a great respond to that. Yeah. Um, I think my approach right now, and I don't know if it'll work or not, but my approach right now is the polished presentation of an idea and of how to think through exercises and problems. I'm trying to create a library of videos for. So there are references that students can have at any time for free and I know you do the same, the same for your students with, with videos. And then that opens up class time to do to jump on tables. But I would prefer if everybody were jumping on tables, not just not just myself. Like I was thinking of because in organic chemistry we'll draw reactions and we'll show atoms getting passed around like hot potatoes from one molecule to another. And I was thinking of like buying oversized T-shirts where students can become the atoms and I can like have bungee cords and they can connect with each other and they can like act out the reactions. But I, I do feel like over, over time, I would like to make it so that what we do in person in class is something that you couldn't do in a video that you could only do in person. So if it means like <laughs> moving around with a group of people as a molecule, if that's what it takes or sculpting something out of clay or drawing something or uh, um, having a discussion or something, I would rather do that in person. And anything that I could do in a video, I'd like to move on to a video. So how does that creative process work? Because it, it is a, a, a terribly high cognitive load. Uh, I've tried to come up with things that don't exist uh, <laughs> as a way of enhancing my teaching or at least telling students that, you know, he does that in his class and no other instructor does that. Uh, and I don't know if there's value in that or if there's more value in, in borrowing uh, slash stealing from other instructors and what they've come up with. Uh, I think, how do you, how do you manage that? I don't know if that question makes any sense. I think, do you find there, okay, I'll <laughs> ask the question differently. I, I don't know if I'm even happy with my question. Do you find it better to come up with something that you can say, I created it, whether it's better or worse than something that pre-exists? No, I think good things don't belong to the people who come up with them. They belong to people who use them well. I would agree. So then the question that I was really asking was, I don't know what I was asking. What were you planning on answering <laughs> earlier? Let's see if I can come up with a question from your answer. Uh, yeah, it was just that. And honestly, sometimes I... I'll like put myself in the place of my students and I'll think of like, even if the explanations I give them are clear and it helps them to solve a problem, I will imagine myself as them understanding it and still being bored. And I feel like that time that we lose in life being bored can never be made up. 
And the whole point of education is to see a richer world. So if I'm boring somebody, then I feel like I'm not doing a good job, a good enough job. So, so uh, you know, it's not so much about, about uh, coming up with a lesson plan that's unique to me or that can spread the word about me, but just something that can be memorable to students and that can incite their interest and that can be useful in making them want to study the things that they have to study to become the professionals they want to be. Fair. There's a question in my head somewhere, but I can't find it. <laughs> so I will jump to the questions that were suggested or that, that I should ask of you. Uh, what is or what would be your go-to karaoke song? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, the sound of silence, probably. But the actual sound of silence, not... <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen... Uh, there was a painting at the Met that sold for a million dollars, and it was just a white canvas, or it was a yeah. canvas painted with white paint. <laughs> sure. I, I, can, I can certainly imagine someone like Kanye West or <laughs> someone who's considered an avant-garde musician uh, just coming out with a CD of just complete silence and charging people $20 or whatever people pay these days for well, you a, know, a musical collection. There is actually, actually, I've been thinking a lot about shadows recently. And insofar as silence is the auditory version of a shadow, uh, because we've all been kind of living shadow versions of our previous lives. But, um, but it's like when you you think of, sh of shadows or the absence of things as or like visually shadows, you think of that as like um, the being unable to see, and that light allows you to see. But if you take like a photo on your phone and you bring the light all the way up, you also can't see anything. So that our vision really depends on an interplay between light and shadows, not just on light. And then shadows are so suggestive. Like if you're in a dark room, people are afraid of the dark or, or things will come into your mind that you ne never would. Anyway, it's a little bit of a ramble, but... Uh, but no, silence. no, ramble on. <laughs> I, I'm, it's giving me questions to ask. <laughs> but silence and, and shadows and that, that uh, at the very least, I guess they're suggestive and they have potential. In chemistry, we use shadows. They express so much. Um, there's a whole field, it's called spectroscopy, where you shine light on stuff and based on the shadows that they cast, you can tell what's in the molecule. That's how we know what the atmospheres are on exoplanets and other stuff like that. Cool. I was hoping to, spectroscopy was another one of those organic chemistry things that I hated. Oh no. I, I hated <laughs> but, writing chemistry labs with spectroscopy <laughs> and having to use the NMR machine that was always oh, broken. No. But so it wasn't because I hated spectroscopy or the spectrophotometer. Because in, that's not in, a in principle. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can hate inanimate objects and maybe that's a, a topic for another discussion, but wait, why can't you hate inanimate objects? I could hate your cup. Oh, no, 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 not inanimate objects. <laughs> and you couldn't hate spectroscopy because of how fascinating and fun it is. Oh, sorry. Oh, my yeah. mistake. I thought you were talking about me not being able to hate a a, a device that prevents me from doing oh, organic yeah. chemistry lab <laughs> at the time I was supposed to. All right, fair. Uh, if you could interview anyone alive or deceased, who would it be? What is something you would... Well, let's answer the first question. That's an interesting question. 
Um, it might be uh, uh, Dostoevsky. Interesting. Okay, so, <laughs> well, then this person asked the question that I would have asked next. What is something you would like to ask him or her? Hmm. Uh, I don't know if this is a dodge, but I feel like the most valuable things that I get from people are the silent impressions that sort of wash over you that's outside of what they say and that people are more effective, more affecting because of what they are than what they present themselves as. So that having the opportunity to be around someone like the person that they are, the person that it took them years to become sort of shines from them, no matter what they're doing. So that the opportunity to see that person, which took so many years and is as much a work of art as anything, um, at that, to be able to observe that in, in particular people sometimes makes whatever you ask them about irrelevant. It's like the presence of that, that, way of experiencing the world that you get to see secondhand that uh, would be affecting no matter what they say. So maybe that's a very... No, I, I'm thinking, uh, have you read the Gulag Archipelago by any chance? No. Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Oh, no, but 20th century, right? He, he, uh, yes. Soviet writer. Yes. Yeah. He was quite influenced by Dostoevsky, uh, but he wrote about, well, the Gulag Archipelago. I don't <laughs> want to give the book away, but it, even the circumstances of him writing the book, which are described in the preface, and you can read about it, are, are quite marvelous. And I feel Dostoevsky didn't read, lead the same life, but I, I find that that period of time had to have been so brutally grim mm that for him to have experienced what he did and then come up with a literary, not a, but literally literary pieces that stand the test of time. Uh, I don't know what question would be worthy of Dostoevsky's time. <laughs> so as you were responding, I was thinking, okay, what would I ask this guy? Or what would I ask, you know, Tolstoy or Solzhenitsyn or any of these people? Uh, and I, I couldn't think of a question for different reasons than what you described uh, that I would ask them. So good question. We don't know what to ask. Okay, this one, I'll ask it. If you could tell something to your high school self, what would it be? And if it had to be advice or the question particularly says advice, but if you could say something to your high school self, whether it be a piece of advice or not, what would you say? I was a terrible student in high school. I never, I was completely disorganized and I never studied anything. I think I would tell myself, my high school self, to um, invest more effort into school, which I had dismissed, which I was kind of dismissive of, um, because the effort that you put in early on pays off in a way that it doesn't as much the more you wait to do it. How does that agree with, or how do you make sense of that with 
Well, what you said earlier about not asking Dostoevsky a question or not wanting to, I guess. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how, how would that mix in the sense that you said that the experience or the, the, the life experiences that someone goes through shines through them as a result of, you know, they become brighter or perhaps duller based on their experiences. And Dostoevsky, to me, seems like someone who would have become seemingly duller with all the seemingly duller, not necessarily duller, but seemingly duller. And for those of you that couldn't see what I just saw, Tim almost reached out to the webcam to, to strangle me. Uh, no, but it, it, for instance, people, at least that lived during that time period in my head would have their spirits broken. Yeah, I mean, Dostoevsky went through some fascinatingly dark stuff. I mean, he was almost, I mean, almost uh, shot in the public square through an mm -hmm. execution. And then he was in Siberian prison for years. When It was interesting when you said that Solzhenitsyn was able to write such literature despite being in such hard times. But when you said that- I don't think it's despite. Maybe I chose the wrong word. But what I meant to say was- uh, I don't think the literature would have been so profound had he not lived it. Right. Yeah. I feel and I wrong. think that going through something like that, it, it takes away a part of your humanity. Mm. And I've sensed the same thing in the writings of Ellie Wiesel. Uh, I read night recently and for some reason I hadn't read it before. And, that's a book that at least made me just put it down when I finished it and I was speechless for quite a while. Maybe a couple of days I was out of out of my head and even my significant other pointed out, what did you read that's, you know, <laughs> that's this bothersome? And I said, just uh, that human beings can do this to, to another, uh, mm. to, to, to each other. But I would argue that, at least from what I took away from your answer earlier, was that I don't think Solzhenitsyn or Dostoevsky would have been able to write what they wrote had they not experienced the things that they experienced. For sure, yeah. So if you tell them, oh, become Russian royalty and you'll be fine, or, you know, given to acquiesce to the Cold War czars or whoever was Stalin, I guess, at the time, and, you know, you'll live a much more comfortable life, how do you reconcile that with... I hate to say that because you were not a good student in high school, you became who you are today, but how does that experience get divorced from your contributions or perhaps your understanding of students that are struggling? Mm. So had you never struggled in the past, do you think, okay, that's the question I wanted to ask. <laughs> I ramble on and eventually I, I come up with a question that I wanted to ask. Would you be hypothetically speaking, as effective of a mentor or someone for a student to talk to uh, as you are, and I know that you are because I've had many conversations with students of yours that end up taking my class either before or after you, uh, do you think you would be able to get through to students in the manner that you do had you not proverbially walked in their shoes? No. Had you been an A student throughout in high school? Do you think you would be the same instructor or the same professor? Who val would you value the same things? 
No, I, I don't think it's impossible. I think a great student, somebody who never had trouble could be a great teacher. But in my personal case, I think if I didn't have trouble, I wouldn't have become as good of a teacher. If so what value do you think would be brought to 15-year-old Tim being told <laughs> by X-year-old Tim? I don't know how old you are. You don't have to disclose, <laughs> but you know, 15 plus X-year-old Tim, uh, hey, you need to put in a little bit more effort knowing full well that that changes the course of, of the future, not of history, but it changes the course of the future to where you don't become the person you become. Probabilistically speaking, there, there's a very good likelihood that, you know, you rise above the odds and you have the golden childhood, you have the golden formative years of college, and then, you know, you're this fantastic chemistry teacher still. So how does that get reconciled in your head? Um, so... I don't, uh, well, first of all, in the advice I gave, uh, there was no regret in it. Like, I don't think uh, the advice. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The advice wouldn't be like, uh, your life would be better if you did this. And I don't think the advice is to create a golden era or to do, to do that, to work harder, to get a comfortable life. I think on the contrary, the advice is to, the advice is to seek out difficulty um, throughout your life, even when you don't have to, difficulty finds you no matter what, even if you seek out comfort, it just, you end up finding difficulty in pettier things. Difficulty finds you no matter what. So seek out a heroic type of difficulty for, to use a slightly bombastic word, but seek out difficulty. And just like with compound interest, the effort you put in early will pay off in a compounded way. So ultimately the, the positive effect you could have, I think would, could be exponential the earlier you start doing it. But I don't think that, that seeking out difficulty would necessarily lead to a more comfortable life or more golden years. I think it would just lead to a more fulfilled one. I wish I had more time because you just, we, I, for the people that are listening on the podcast, in case anyone is listening, Tim and I had a long conversation a while back. I don't know if you remember it on, uh, what the goal of education ought to be, whether it's the end or if it's the journey and the answer that you just gave me proves my point. And I'm very, very happy about it. So thank you. Now I'm three for three. I, I couldn't wait to say that. I, I, I was, I thought that that's where you were going with it. And then when you actually got to the end, I feel vindicated. <laughs> Well, I'm happy I to feel, you. I, I definitely well, remember our conversation, especially how much I enjoyed it. As well, thank you. Yeah. All right, Mr. Tim, uh, thank you very much for your time. I do want to respect it. And it would be an absolute pleasure if we could do this again. Oh, anytime. Yeah, it's, such, it's so much fun talking with you. This is my way of guilting people into coming back because they said yes once on podcast <laughs> or on recording. Oh, no, no so. guilt necessary. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy your, uh, what is it today? Friday. Enjoy the rest of your day and stay safe. Thanks. You too, Inara. Take care. Next week, I talk with a speech professor who wanted to be a marine biologist, but also suffered, unfortunately, from motion sickness. So she couldn't go out on boats. Here's a little clip from my conversation with her. Um, I worked in a casino for a year. At some point in my life, that'll that'll be a crazy memoir book. Um, decided I 
did not need that in my life and went back to school and studied communication because I thought I was so bad at it. Might as, might as well get a master's in it because I'm a crazy kind of person that does that. I hope you've enjoyed these podcasts. I'm having a smashing time making them. Until next time, or another 97 times, take care.